Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Today, we're talking about a part of Southeast Asia that we just don't get to talk about enough, Timor-Leste. As the region's newest nation, Timor-Leste has been independent for just over 20 years. It's got a young population, ambitions to join ASEAN, and is regularly ranked as the most democratic nation in Southeast Asia. Since independence in May 2002, Timor-Leste's political situation has grown increasingly complex, with the emergence of new parties, new coalitions and new leaders. But the recent presidential election in April 2022 delivered the return of a familiar face, Jose Ramos Horta, once an activist in exile and now president of Timor-Leste for a second time. He is supported by another familiar name, Janana Guzmao, considered a kingmaker in Timorese politics and someone who harbours his own ambitions to return to government as Prime Minister. To share with us his insights into the politics of Timor-Leste, I am joined by Professor Michael Leach, a comparative political scientist at Swinburne University of Technology. With 20 years research experience in Timor-Leste and the Pacific, Michael is a leading commentator and analyst of the politics and history of Timor-Leste and a co-founder of the International Area Studies Association, the Timor-Leste Studies Association. He is the author of Nation Building and National Identity in Timor-Leste, published by Rutledge in 2017, and co-editor with Andrew McWilliam of the Rutledge Handbook of Contemporary Timor-Leste, published in 2019. Michael, welcome to SEAC Stories. Thank you, Natalie. Pleased to be here. So we're here to talk about the politics of Timor-Leste. Can you give us a bit of a rough overview of how it has evolved, how politics in Timor-Leste has evolved since independence in 2002? Yeah, well, just a quick note that it was first declared independent in 1975, very briefly, you know, 475 years of Portuguese colonialism. And then very rapidly, nine days later, the Indonesian military invaded and there was a 24-year occupation. Yes, and an important point. Thank you for reminding our listeners of that, absolutely. Well, the reason I do is that Timorese uh, regard the date in 2002 as the restoration of independence, so, you know, of their independence from the 28th of November 1975 that lasted nine days effectively. So since 2002, obviously, they've been, uh, their independence has been restored. To characterise the politics very briefly, it's a semi-presidential system, which is like France or Portugal, and in the sense that there is a president who is directly elected, who has some executive powers, and a prime minister, uh, which we're more familiar with. So you have both of those. Prime minister is the more powerful of those two figures, making it different to France, but nonetheless, they share power. So you've got to understand there's kind of two powerful positions where the prime minister is responsible to a majority in the parliament in the way that we understand that they share some executive powers with a directly elected president. The party system is interesting if I was to characterise it. It's the sort of party system you see after independence struggles. There's been a united front against a foreign oppressor that had certain internal tensions within it that crack open, as it were, into a multi-party system after independence. So most of the major parties are different factions and fractions of the former independence movement. Okay, so that that is why it has become increasingly complex in the last 20 years. So initially there was a resistance to, in this case, Indonesia, 
And over time, these parties have become, what, more fractured, more focused on their own individual policy issues? or Yes. Some of those divisions go back to 1975 itself. So Fretland, which is probably the largest party in Timor-Leste, although increasingly, you know, the CNRT competes with that, is the original party of independence. And what the CNRT is, is Shanana Guzmao's attempt in the 1980s, the original CNRT, which wasn't a political party, but which was an independence movement front, was the attempt to bridge the 1975 divisions between the parties that erupted into a brief civil war in 1975. And as the Timorese resisted the Indonesian occupation through the 1980s, the leadership, particularly Shinana Guzmao, came to see those party divisions as inhibiting the struggle for independence. So they set up a new cross-party front called the CNRT, the National Council of the Timorese Resistance, trying to bring them all together. Now, when independence was restored in 2002, as has happened in Africa and so on, that transition point from a national independence movement to political parties is quite a vexed one. And Shinana Guzmao at that time said he wasn't going to turn the CNRT into a political party, which he didn't do initially. Then Fretland won the government in 2002, being the original party of independence. And in the end, Schneider decided that to be able to oppose Fretland and have a genuine multi-party system, he needed to resurrect that concept of the CNRT and he turned it into a political party, which is the National Congress of the Timorese Reconstruction. So as you see, it's a complicated picture, but what you the two largest parties in Timor-Leste today are different eras of this kind of broad national front designed to achieve the goal of independence, now appearing as political parties in an independent Timor-Leste. Yeah, so thank you. Heaps to unpack there. Do you think Janana was genuine in his commitment to not making CNRT into a political party initially? Initially, yes, I do. And he could have done that in 2001 too during the UNTI, the UN era. Of course, that's the other interesting thing about Timor-Leste. It had a major period of direct UN governance from 1999 to 2002. Yes, he had the opportunity to create a party called the CNRT in that era and he didn't. So it was the experience of the first five years after independence that apparently drove him to changing his position and turning the concept of the CNRT, which was a powerful one like Fretland, it resonated in the Timorese consciousness to a political party. He didn't do that till 2007. So you said that there have been other examples in Africa where independence movement fronts have not translated well into political parties. Why is that? Well, especially where there's been a military component to the resistance, and that was the case in Timor-Leste, because military figures are not don't make especially, as a rule, especially good Democrats. They're used to top-down structures, and they're used to having their orders followed. There's a lot of senior ex-military, ex-Fallantil, which was the military front, figures in Timorese politics. Now, unusually, this hasn't, to date at least, proved a huge problem for Timorese democracy because of the commitment of some former leaders and independence movement leaders, the strong commitment to democratic means and norms. And of course, leaders like Jose Ramos Horta, who were not military figures at all, being in the picture there as well. And Mari Alcateri was not a military figure. And for a military figure, Shinano Guzmao is quite the Democrat. But there are, you know, other figures in Timorese politics who I think exhibit some characteristics of that sort of top-down militarist view of order, discipline, and so on. That perhaps, you know, struggle a little bit in the democratic context. But nonetheless, overall, the broader picture is that Timor-Leste has perhaps done a lot better on that front than some other regimes that ended up with military dictatorships after independence. 
Yeah, I think the current Prime Minister, Tama Tanruak, was a former army general, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And there are other figures in politics who, are, who come out of the uh, Falintil military. These are very honoured and respected people in Timorese society because of their role in the resistance struggle. And I do not mean my comments to in any way demean them, but rather to state in a general sense that the transition from a military-led independence front to a democracy is a difficult one, and many countries have not performed well in that process. To date, Timor-Leste has done well at that, but it's a it's a constant issue when you've got senior ex-military figures in your democracy. Okay, and I might ask you later about the next generation, because I did say Timor's got a very young population, and it is interesting to think about leadership in terms of these honoured former guerrilla fighters and the emerging next generation. But first, why don't you tell us a bit more about Jose Ramos Horta, who was in exile for a long time. He was like this sort of travelling diplomat and advocate for Timorese independence. Was it inevitable that he would end up in politics? When you talk about Jose Ramos Horta, you're talking about one of the founders of the nation. So back in 1975, he and Mario Alcatiri among the original members of Fredland. So these are, these are, the, these are the founders of the nation. They weren't the only ones there. There was Javier Duan Moral and, and, and others in 1975. Then he was sent out of the country shortly before the Indonesian invasion to lead, with some other figures, the diplomatic resistance. So there were three fronts to the Timorese resistance. There was the military front, Falintil, where Shinada Guzmao was centrally involved. Then there was the clandestines, the younger people in the cities and towns resisting the Indonesian occupation in a clandestine way. And the diplomatic front, which was the one that we were most familiar with outside Timor-Leste, in the UN and in various countries around the world, agitating for 24 years for Timorese right to self-determination. I think it was, therefore, fairly inevitable that someone as senior as Jose Ramos Horta in the resistance structure would end up in politics, and indeed he did. He's been president twice. He's also been prime minister for a short period of time. People often forget that. Okay, so let's talk about these recent presidential elections that delivered him the presidency. They took place in two rounds. Why was this necessary? Yeah, so the the Timorese have a two-round system like the French. It's a runoff system. So there were 16 candidates in the first round. A first round is enough if somebody gets 50% of the vote. Uh, Jose Ramos Huerta came very, very close. He got 46%, but not quite. So because he didn't get an outright majority in the end, there had to be a runoff of the top two candidates. So this is something that Australians do with the alternative vote or the preferential system all at once. It's an instant runoff. We do it that way. So these candidates are eliminated down to the top two. And so there was a runoff election the month after in April between Jose Ramos Huerta, who came first, and the then incumbent president, Fredlands Lou Olo, who came second with 22%, went to a runoff round where Jose Ramos Horta won comfortably with a margin of 62 to 38. I admire your ability to recall these figures off the top of your head. <laughs> uh, Ramos Horta described his first round win as a political earthquake. Is that because he got so close to getting more than 50%? You know, I mean, in a round of 16, 46% is really quite an achievement. Obviously, the Ramaswater's team would have liked to do it in one go and get 50%, but that was a, quite a challenge with 16 candidates running, you know. So, yes, political earthquake, that's what how he characterised it. At that time, they were talking about the CNRT, Shnana Guzmao's CNRT, who backed Ramos Horta's campaign, though Horta was independent formally. They were looking for an early parliamentary election. What your listeners need to understand is that parliamentary election, which is currently due next year, 
is where government is formed and it's really the more important of the two elections. Okay, well, can you tell us more about that? Because first of all, is the presidency just a popularity contest? And you also said that the parliamentary elections are currently scheduled for next year. What's going on there? Are they trying to bring them forward earlier so that the president, Ramos Horta, and the possible new parliament can work more closely together? Okay. Firstly, is the presidency just a popularity contest? By no means. The president of Timor-Leste is a very important position. They have a strong role in the formation of government and under certain circumstances in dissolving parliament and calling early elections or rearranging a government in the parliament. Also has much broader powers than a governor general would have, gets to appoint a lot of important positions like prosecutors and so on, members of the state council. Then they have really substantive powers like a veto over legislation. So, you know, this is some things that that the Governor-General in our system does not have. This is a semi-presidential system. So that veto over legislation is uh, reversible by Parliament, but in some areas it needs to be reversed by two-thirds of Parliament, which is very difficult to get. So when you think about that in some policy areas, that's quite a substantial power of the Timorese President, and they have a complete irreversible veto over executive decree laws. So you see this is quite a powerful position. It's not just a popularity contest, of course, Nonetheless, though, it is a direct vote with the Timorese people, so you do need to be popular to get into that position, and Jose Ramos-Horta obviously was, especially with the support of Shinana Guzmao. Uh, to go to your second question, Shinana Guzmao supporting Jose Ramos-Horta was, if you like, part one of a two-part strategy on his part to get back into government. So back in 2020, Shinana Guzmao was in a coalition government with several other parties. There was a, it's a long story, but there was an attempt to engineer an early election because the then Fretland president, Luolo Guterres, had knocked back several ministers proposed by Shinana Guzmao's CNRT, which was a controversial decision. Shinana Guzmao did not pass the budget of his own government in an attempt to trigger an early election, but this failed. The smaller parties in his coalition jumped ship, as it were, and were supported then by Fretland. So the smaller parties ended up staying in government He went to opposition. Fretland came into the government. It's a long and complicated story. It's the sort of thing that happens in proportional representation systems. Anyway, the upshot of all that is that Shinana Guzmao has been out of power for two years and he's been trying to get back into power. This is step one, getting a supporter of his in the president's chair. Step two is to win the parliamentary elections. They are currently scheduled for next year, early next year. CNRT wants those elections brought forward. And the president potentially has the constitutional power to dissolve parliament early. Now, that is a controversial constitutional move, and the current signs are that Jose Ramos-Porta is, in fact, not going to do this, and we will be having regular parliamentary elections somewhere between March and May in 2023. That's so interesting because we said at the beginning that Timor is regularly ranked as the most democratic country in Southeast Asia, and I was going to ask you, is it constitutional for the President Jose Ramos-Horta to bring the parliamentary elections forward? So it will be very interesting to see if that does transpire or if you're sort of ear to the ground that that is not going to be happening. You know, very interesting indeed, actually. Yeah, look, on the constitutionality of dissolving parliament, normally you want to see some problem in the parliament where a majority is is happily going along, governing Normally, there isn't a direct role for the president to intervene in that. Presidents tend to come into play where, as happened in 2020, problem evinces in the majority uh, governing 
Parliament. That said, does the President have that power? At this point, the Timorese Court of Appeal has given the President's pretty wide political discretion so far. So probably Jose Ramos Horta, had he called an early election, would have got away with doing that. But I think he's decided that that's a controversial course of action. He had his criticisms of Luolo's tenure as president, and he's evidently decided he won't be taking these kind of controversial steps. He'll wait for the ordinary election time early next year. But he probably, in practice, had those powers. Yeah, it really strikes me as demonstrating a commitment to democracy and the constitutional process. But it sort of concerns me that the presidency has those powers and it's up to the individual to determine how they'll use them. Yes, I see your point. But I mean, bear in mind, this is a person directly elected by the Timorese people to wield these powers. So we give those powers to somebody just appointed by the prime minister. You know, so, and we saw in 1975, a controversial example of that here. Yes, but presidents are politically accountable five years later to the public directly. So, you know, there is that mechanism. It is not certainly out of the question that future constitutional decisions of the uh, Timorese courts will narrow presidential discretion. Just to go into that briefly, what happened was the court decided that short of a formal impeachment process of the president, for which the CNRT did not have the numbers a couple of years ago, they wouldn't be reviewing the political discretions of the president. Now, that leaves open that if there is a formal impeachment of a president ever, that they will review the political discretions of presidents. So Timor is a young country constitutionally, and it's also a young country jurisprudentially, if you like. So some of these things are still in play. That's, uh, I think, a new word, jurisprudentially. (laughs) You're welcome. But it's a, a nice segue to my next question, actually, which is about the median age of Timor, which is just 18 years old, I believe. Yet so many of the people that we've been talking about thus far, Taumatan Ruak, Jose Ramos Huerta, Shanana Guzmao, are these former guerrilla fighters or involved in the, the independence resistance fight in the 70s. Are there any new leaders coming up through the ranks as part of this younger generation? My word, there are. There certainly are. But you point to something that's really critical in understanding Timorese politics, and that's kind of the generational gaps. So uh, there certainly are young leaders coming through the ranks. Um, you'll see people like Fidelis Magalash, who has a very senior position, probably second only to the Prime Minister in the executive government. He's the President of the Council of Ministers. You'll see uh, younger figures like Rui Araujo become Prime Minister back in 2015. I mean, he's in his 50s, but nonetheless, in the Timorese context, that's a younger generation. Fidelis, I should say, is much younger than that. He would be in his 30s. And you see those people coming through. What you don't see is the very senior leaderships of the country changing to a younger generation. There's kind of a process of rotating presidency and prime minister as a rule between figures from the 970s of politics. Now, that's been going on for 20 years now. There is a sense that this election must be the last one in which this is the case because of the age of some of these figures. Um, Shinada Guzmao is in his late 70s. Mario Kateri and, and Jose Ramos Horta are in their early to mid-70s. There is only so long this can go on for. And, of course, as you point out, median age of 18 in the country means that parties are going to need to increasingly appeal to younger voters, and that is already the case. And Timorese politics has, for the last 20 years, strongly emphasised the credentials of the resistance, resistance legitimacy. What was your role during the resistance era. Every five years, that becomes less and less critical, one would think, 
to appealing to a new generation who were not there, who don't remember occupied Timor-Leste, who don't remember the Indonesian era. And presumably the focus on policy issues is going to have to increase in five years' time and the way parties appeal, particularly to younger voters, where the voting age in Timor is 17, and 50% of the population is under 18, they're coming through in large numbers every election. Increasingly, how parties appeal to that demographic is going to determine the outcome of Timor's elections. Yeah, isn't that astonishing that half of the country was not even alive when the restoration of independence was declared? Well, more than half, indeed, yeah. So let me ask you just about two policy issues quickly before we wrap up. I know they're big issues, but um, the first one is about this sovereign wealth fund that Timor has. This is related to its oil and gas reserves in the Timor Sea. How does this sovereign wealth fund factor into Timor-Leste's political landscape? Is the fund a benefit or a burden? The Timor's entire economy runs currently, in terms of the formal economy anyway, on recycling the rents, as it were, from oil and gas in the sea, sea through the government. So government receives the royalties in the petroleum fund. Last time I looked, they were around $17 billion US. It spends those and hires public servants, runs policy programs, things that drive the economy. Government spending really drives the economy strongly. A lot of private sector performance relies on people's wages and so on coming through the government, through pensions as well. So this really is the main driver of the Timorese economy, which strongly needs to diversify over time. The issue is that Timorese governments in in the last 10 years particularly have been spending more than the estimated sustainable income. In other words, they've been spending more than the interest that petroleum fund generates and have been dipping into the principal in a consistent way. And that means the principal is dropping over time. Now, sometimes investment performances bring it up again, but the general trend is downward and people are estimating 10 to 15 years until Timor no longer has that petroleum wealth fund. Unless the Greater Sunrise Field is developed and more funds come into it, this looks like 10 to 15 years of time. So how that fund is managed is very central to the future of Timor-Leste. It's designed for future generations to benefit from the current oil and gas wealth. It's being spent too quickly. So the real challenge is to economically diversify Timor's economy before that runs out. Oil and gas produces a lot of revenue for the government, but it doesn't produce a lot of jobs. Other industries need to be developed while that oil and gas money is there to develop them. Tourism, coffee, other things. Bearing in mind, of course, always that Timor-Leste is predominantly a subsistence economy and some 65% of Timorese are subsistence farmers. More money could be invested in agriculture as well, import replacement and those sort of things. In the meantime, economic diversification is a massive challenge and Timor-Leste is running out of time. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is the Australia-Timor-Leste bilateral relationship. Of course, Ramos Horda has spent a lot of time in Australia and Shanana Guzmao, if, if he gets up as Prime Minister, you know, he was formerly married to an Australian. What might we expect from Timor-Leste and from Ramos Horda in particular in his role as president in terms of the bilateral relationship? Look, the bilateral relationship is really back on track. They went through a very difficult period between about 2012 to 2018 where Timor was campaigning for a median line international maritime boundary with Timor-Leste, with Australia, as was its right under international law. The Australian government at that time was resisting an international maritime boundary settlement. Timor-Leste took Australia to uh, the UN through the UNCLOS, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, mandatory conciliation provision, which had never been used before. Cut a long story short, Timor-Leste was successful 
in achieving a maritime boundary with Australia, which didn't previously exist. This was the only area of our maritime boundary that had not been settled. Australia had not settled it because Australia had such a good deal in what was called the Joint Petroleum Development Area, which was in Timorese sovereign waters. If you put a maritime boundary at the halfway mark, it would have been in Timorese sovereign waters. Now that there is a maritime boundary at the halfway mark, it is indeed in Timorese sovereign waters, but the oil and gas in that area is nearly gone. So Timor-Leste ultimately achieved this goal. This got them more future royalties from any development in the Greater Sunrise Field, which is yet to be developed. And they now have a halfway boundary with Australia, like Australia has with New Zealand and other countries from 2018. Australian Timor-Leste relationship is back on track since that occurred. Uh, to go to your other part of your question, Jose Ramos Hoyer is a very experienced master diplomat with decades and decades of experience. One can expect bilateral relationships in his role as president to be conducted well, very well. He's very fond of Australia. He has good friends in Australia. He has a long history of friendships with senior Australian politicians and so on. I'm sure he'll do very well in that role in terms of maintaining what is a massive improvement in the Australia Timor Leste bilateral relations. That's very exciting to hear. Now, if uh, this conversation has stimulated our listeners' interest in following politics in Timor Leste, what should we be looking out for in the short term? Yes, well, keep an eye out on when the next parliamentary election is. Sometime early next year, Timor will go to the polls again. This will actually be much more important than the presidential elections that have just occurred. They'll be where the next government is formed. And what we'll see then is whether or not we're going to see an aggressive prosecution of the Greater Sunrise vision that Shinana Guzmao has, which is to process the oil and gas onshore on Timor-Leste on the south coast, which is uh, something a project dear to his heart but very controversial because of the amount of money that would need to be spent to set up oil and gas processing on the south coast adds a high level of risk to this uh, proposal that he has, this um, mega project vision that he's advanced for a long time. So the outcome of next year's parliamentary elections will be critical to whether that's going to be pushed again by Shinoda Guzmao, the Tasimane south coast oil and gas mega development. Amazing. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on CX Stories. I really enjoyed our conversation. You're very welcome and thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.